from this to this. This is Livable City, a regular podcast guiding us on a journey to more human places. I'm your host, Jim Hodap. I'm excited you're here to learn, to listen, and to lead. Welcome back to Livable City. This is part two of my interview with Doug Gordon. If you missed the last part, go back to the previous episode two weeks ago and fill yourself in on that, and then this episode will make a lot more sense. So without further ado, I give you part two of my conversation with Doug. But it's almost as if the notion of a place is gone, right? It's uh, Cars have brought in this notion that uh, we're constantly in motion, and that's the default state of being. So, And we've kind of allowed that to happen. Would, would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. You know, when you go to a meeting about putting in a bike lane um, or bike parking or street seating or a bus stop, what do the drivers say? Well, how am I going to get around? How am I going to get around? Right. Um, nobody, and, ever, nobody ever asks, like, how am I going to stay in place? How am I going to yeah. enjoy this place? How am I going to enjoy and be safe in my own neighborhood <laughs> if I want to just hang out for the weekend, if I want to walk to that corner store? Exactly. Nobody ever asked that question. Um and yeah, I think also, you know, you think about cars also just add to this massive problem of consumerism that we have. You know, speaking of gentrification, we have this big thing in New York City where undeveloped parcels of land, and this is true in Chicago, I'm sure, get turned into a Whole Foods or a Wegmans, a big box grocery store. And if we weren't so focused on cars and where we're going to put all of them, those same parcels could be divided up into smaller retail so that we could walk to a smaller store to get our our milk, to get our hair cut, to do our banking. Um, And it wouldn't have to be drive-throughs and parking lots. Um, Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, cars just... Well, I guess I I can just keep repeating. Cars suck. Um, They really... (laughs) And they suck suck the life out of places. They literally do. Yeah. With their exhaust, too. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, and, and we both live in places where, especially when the weather's nice, people like to sit outside, maybe at a sidewalk cafe or restaurant, um, maybe, you know, in a park. And they, it's not pleasant to do that next to cars. <laughs> so um, there's that social life that's lost too. Or, or even just a, in a non-commercial setting, just a bench where somebody can sit and read a book or where that senior who's still aging in place can go outside and see people of different ages. You know, you talked about your family. Like, my, my grandmother is in a uh, retirement home in the Bronx, but it's like it's like an island. It's cut off from the, the neighborhood where it is. And so she only ever really sees people who are her age. Or she sees people when their families come to visit or, you know, when we come to visit. But she doesn't have that opportunity to just sit on a bench and watch all types of people, all ages, go by her as the day goes on. So um, that that's that's also part of what I think it means to for it to be a livable city. No, that's a great answer. Yeah, it's almost as if like going back to, you know, the Wegmans or Whole Foods or something like that 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 it becomes infill in a otherwise empty lot. It's like, you know, the original intent is to be a grocery store, but there's almost one step before that that we've implicitly made um made true about these developments. And it starts with, where are people going to park? You know, even before, like, the purpose of to buy food, to buy 
um, accessories, stuff like that. What's more important in our conversations is, is there going to be enough parking for cars? Oh, for sure. I mean, because a lot of the zoning will say, well, this this parcel is zoned for retail, and that retail should have X number of parking spaces based on the square footage of the uh, building that's going to be constructed. So, yeah, I mean, it's a huge problem here. We still have minimum parking requirements in too much of, of New York City. Um, there are some exceptions based on location and proximity to transit. But, um, yeah, it's we, we are primarily... Parking really... You, you hit on something, which is that I think parking is at the root of all of these problems. And, and it's the first question that comes up with anything and everything. A new school goes in. Um, you know, in New York City, they, to use a kind of extreme example, they're going to close Rikers Island, which is the infamous prison um, uh, jail center. And the idea is to um, split up the jails so that they're more borough focused and they're smaller to so oh, decrease so to decrease the number of people who are put into our criminal punishment system and then kind of spread out these jails to the boroughs and the number one complaint that you hear is not well you're going to put all these criminals in my neighborhood which would is its own separate terrible discussion of how people react, but it's parking. Where are all the people going to park? Where are the, um, you know, the staff of the corrections department? Where are they going to park when they come to their jobs? So it, it parking infects and infuses every discussion that we have over how we uh, build a more equitable city, which is the case as, as we're seeing with the Rikers Island discussion. Indeed. Yeah. There's a number of developments that I've observed in Chicago where there is an old building there first, right? Something built from the 20s or something like that. They tear it down, turn it into something new, typically you know residential with a little bit of retail, and it has a massive new parking garage to it, whereas the thing before did not. And I can't help but shed a tear about that because um, it's like, how did people get to that old building and occupy it, but why do they need a huge new parking garage for this new thing? Right, and the thing that probably attracted people to live and work um, and shop in that neighborhood are the qualities that would be completely illegal to construct today. You know, there's a lot of talk. Sometimes urbanists and others will say, if you look at the places that Americans like to go on vacation, you'll see that there's just like an inherent understanding that walkability and livability are good. Think about Main Street USA in Disneyland or Disney yes. World. Think about people who go to Mackinac Island in Michigan or Martha's Vineyard or who travel to Europe and go to Paris. Nobody goes to Paris to drive. They go to Paris <laughs> to sit at a cafe and they go to Paris to stroll in a plaza on their way to a museum. So we inherently as human beings... Um, because Americans are still human beings, uh, we in, we inherently understand that walkability is good and desirable. There's a reason why walkable neighborhoods in this country are expensive, because they are desirable and we don't build enough of them. Yes, that's perfect. Yeah, it makes me think that we've got we've got a lot of institutional force working against us, right? Because we're not that unique, right? We go, we see this when we go travel into other countries. Like you said, we love it, right? Like it's, it's just obvious uh, to so many people, the vast majority of people who visit. But then they come home and there's a huge disconnect. So that says to me there's institutional things in the way. What, what do you think those are? Uh, political fear is that as at the top drivers are very vocal. 
Um, you know, I, I think a big problem that we have is that it's very hard to activate a constituency that doesn't exist or know that it should. So when you threaten to take parking from a neighborhood because you want to put in a new bus lane or a plaza, the people who depend on those parking spots are told, hey, the city is going to take your parking, show up at this meeting, contact your elected official, make a stink, and they do. Whereas the people who don't yet know that there's going to be a faster bus for them to take are not going to show up. You know, you're not, it's the same issue with housing. The single family uh, homeowners, when a giant apartment building is going to be put up next to them on their quiet side street, they're activated and they complain. Whereas you can't activate people who live in a building that hasn't been built yet. So I think that the big structural problem we have is that our politicians are are almost always going to listen to the people who have something to lose. And they're almost never going to listen to the people who have something to gain because the people who have something to gain either don't exist yet or don't know that they have something to um, to gain. I think the other piece of that in the case of transportation, whether it's buses or cycling, is that people are busy. And uh, the structural issue that we're up against is that many of the meetings through which these decisions are made um, happen at 6.30 on a Wednesday night in a school auditorium or a church basement. And if you're young, if you're a wage earner, if you don't have a flexible schedule, if you've got young kids, you're not probably going to show up to that meeting because it means you have to leave work at 5.30, which not many of us can do. Um, it might mean subjecting yourself to being yelled at by a bunch of strangers who wants to do that. That's so the people, fun. you know, right, exactly. So the people who are going to show up are going to be your older retirees, largely, you know, it's I'm painting with a broad brush, but that's largely true. Sure. Um, and so that that's the big structural problem we're up against is, is that um, even if you come back from that trip to Europe and you say, I want this, it requires you to take on, I mean, I'm an activist. I, I've taken on essentially a part-time job. To, to do a lot of the stuff that I do. Yeah. And, you know, showing up to meetings, no one's paying me to do that. It's a lot um, of work. And so we can't, re- yeah, and we can't expect people to become full time activists for things that they might not even know what they need. You know, they, they, uh, we're inside baseball folks, like I said. So we go to these places and we come back and we kind of know generally what would work here and the contextual solutions for a bike lane in New York or Chicago, but most people don't really know. They just kind of get a feeling. And so we can't expect them to be experts and write that letter to their mayor or to their city council representative saying, I want X, Y, and Z, and I know exactly how it can be done. Yeah, indeed. So on the subject of institutions too, right? I, um, I listened to one of your recent podcasts where your co-host Sarah visited Finland for that annual winter cycling conference. And one thing really stood out to me about that, one line in particular that that she did an interview, I think it was with a, a planner, a Finnish planner, and he said, um, you know, most towns and cities around the world have basically given over their planning direction to traffic engineers. And I stopped to think about that. You know, I've thought about this kind of stuff a lot, but that hit me in a way that I never thought about before. And it's so true. We start with how we get around, and in North America, that's by the car, and that's an enormous institution that's right at the very start of planning um, how our how our neighborhoods look. Right. I mean, uh, we are um, 
beholden to the gods of level of service. Um, so level, you know, level of service for your listeners who might not know um, is basically this idea that you know what's the throughput for cars on a street, and if it reach it's at a certain threshold, it gets a good grade. If it's at a a lower threshold, if cars aren't coming through, if they're getting backed up, it's at a lower grade, and there's that sweet spot. Right, that engineers and traffic planners want to keep everything at. And so you may have a street where you could completely shut it down to traffic and thousands of people will come out on their bicycles or on foot and shop at the stores and talk to their neighbors and, and it could just move tons of people through on a bus or whatever. But if it's going to slow down cars on surrounding streets, it's going to get rejected probably um, because of the effect it will have on traffic. And so we start with that formula in so many of our cities. Well, what's the effect of traffic? What's the effect going to be on cars? And we don't ask ourselves, well, what's going to be the effect on people's lungs? What's going to be the effect on people's ears? And what's going to be the effect on people's general sense of happiness when they experience that street? So, yeah, you're right. It's, it's just this is the starting place. It's parking. It's traffic. It's, it's how fast the cars are going. And I, we need to flip that equation. So we're asking just what's the effect on people? Right. It's like we need a more expansive definition of what we value. Um, more things need to be front and center than just how do we get around in a car. So how did how did we actually get here? How did we get here? Um, you know, I in, oh, well, what I was going to say before that, sorry, was that you know, just because he's in the news, Joe Biden has that famous quote of like, "Don't tell me what you value, show me your budget, and I'll tell you what you value." And I apply that to streets. Is you know, we hear a lot of mayors talking about that they really value safety and they Vision Zero is a big thing. And my feeling is like, I don't need to hear you say that you don't think anybody should die in traffic. That's just a no-brainer. I want to see what your plan is for achieving it. Um, you know, what's, What are your target goals for reducing cars? How many miles of bike lanes are you installing? What's the quality of those bike lanes? So I think we need to push our elected officials a lot harder so that their rhetoric um, and their actions start to converge. Right, like, a, like an Anne Hidalgo in Paris. She's getting very specific. She's getting super specific, and I think we need to hear more of that from American mayors. Yeah, absolutely. Um, sorry, so your next your question, I, I backtracked a little bit. Yeah, so how, how did we get here? How did we get to this place where we prioritize level of service of cars over safely existing in a neighborhood, being out in a plaza, enjoying a, a latte on a cafe that fronts a street, all these types of things. How did we, how did we get so focused on cars? Um, well, you certainly, your, your listeners, I'm sure a lot of them are familiar with um, the work of Peter Norton, who's a historian at the University of Virginia, and his book, Fighting Traffic, um, which focuses on the rise of the automobile during the early part of the 20th century. Certainly it was part of my kind of like self-taught course on a lot of this stuff. I heard him speak at a conference um, and was just blown away. You know, it when, when cars first came on the scene in the early 1900s, they were seen in many of the ways that will be familiar to your listeners in terms of how we talk about bikes today. Um, the drivers were seen as scofflaws who didn't respect the rules of the road. Um, they were seen as interlopers who belonged in the suburbs, not in the city. Um, they were seen as wealthy, well-to-do people who are not like the common man who was just getting around on foot or on a streetcar, um, and uh, you know, Peter tells the story about how the automobile industry, through 
kind of like grass top type organizations, astroturf type organizations, I should say, um, started to change that narrative. And so I'm sure, you know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with the origin of jaywalking and how that became a, a term that was pushed upon people by the auto industry. And it wasn't, yes. wasn't a thing that people did. Um, and it's kind of like that hundred year head start that I was talking about. I mean, the, the other thing with how we got here is that the automobile industry in the United States and in other countries is enormous. And I, I joke on the podcast a lot that my idea for how to make a better city is just make it easier for people to walk on their own power or take a bicycle or get out in their wheelchair or sit somewhere if that's what they choose to do. And nobody's giving me a million dollars to fund that company to make that happen. So, you know, we're up against the highway industry, we're up against the automobile industry, we're up against the ancillary industries that are dependent on those uh, businesses you know, Madison Avenue and all the money they throw at automobile advertising. You know, so I think that gets back to what we were talking about, about the podcast is approaching cars from a cultural perspective. So we can see that this isn't just about hitting people over the heads with facts and figures. Um, if it was, we'd, we'd be winning. Yeah, indeed. So you do a lot of advocacy work, as you mentioned before, you know, and, and how, how do you tend to think about making a dent on the uh, status quo that the car has in our cities. You know, how do you how do you start on such an enormous thing? Well, um, one of the things that has um, informed my advocacy related to that question is to start with this idea that bicycles are not cars. Um, in very many American cities, um, bikes and cars are treated the same way. They have to follow all the same rules. Um, you know, people always flirt with registration and licensing for cyclists. There's this idea that uh, yeah. that right that drivers and cyclists, same roads, same rules, the end, period. Right. And so a lot of my advocacy, especially in the last few years, has been focused on this idea of like, well, okay, the big heavy lifting, changing all of our streets, that's going to take a really long time and not pay off uh, very quickly. So what can we do that we can fix now that will pay off quickly. And so one example of that is um, we, we passed a law in New York that was signed into law last at the end of last year, is now in effect. Um, it's called the LPI law. So an LPI is a leading pedestrian interval, right? It, it's that signal where the walk signal goes on a few seconds before the green light for cars. It allows pedestrians to get a head start in the crosswalk so that drivers see them, everybody's more visible, and that a turning driver especially doesn't just go at the same time as a pedestrian and hit them. So I, I noticed a bunch of years ago that cyclists were using the LPIs at intersections to get a head start. The, the walk signal would go on and cyclists would go. Um, even though technically that was illegal. And so, you know, I wrote a post on my blog about how this could work, what would it would, what we would need to do to change the law to make this very common sense, easy switch. And then forwarded it to a friend who worked for a um, who worked for a city council person here in New York and said like, what could we do about this? Could we make this a law? And to make a long story short, eventually, you know, it did become a law. And now it is legal for people on bikes in New York City to treat any intersection where there is a leading pedestrian interval um, to treat that walk signal like a green. And it has 
been very popular. People are using it. We have to wait for some of the safety results, but early reports were really good. And so that's a long example of basically saying, you know, look for those little tweaks where we can start to build this conversation of like, okay, so it's not same roads, same rules. It's totally different types of vehicles um, and we should treat them that way. And, you know, cyclists are closer on the continuum to the pedestrian end of that spectrum than they are to the driver end of that spectrum. And so I think that's a really good way to look at advocacy. Um, what are the technical and legal fixes we can do to start to give people more rights and, and different responsibilities? No, that's a really good point, because many times it is this notion of multifaceted laws that stand in the way of common sense things, like like exactly what you just described. You know, I've I've observed the same thing here in Chicago. We have some leading indicator pedestrian crossing lights as well, and I treat them that way too. It it just makes sense. If you all of a sudden got off your bike and just walked it, you could do that legally. So why can't you do it by pedaling it as well? Yeah, I think another really great example is like when we have these conversations where people scream about wrong way cyclists. Um, you know, it's a one-way street. Why are they always going the wrong way? Um, wagging our finger at people just isn't working. And I, I sometimes joke that if if it did work, we'd be the safest country in the world because Americans <laughs> do we do like to scold people for misbehaving. Um, but you know, so when you see somebody riding the wrong way down a one-way street, and then you see it again and again and again, that's not a sign that people are inherently bad. That cyclists are inherently scofflaws. That's a sign that. They figured out that there's a shorter connection that needs to be made, and you know we had an example of that here. There was a street in my neighborhood, Plaza Street, um, and it's this big oval around a traffic circle, basically. And you had a couple of choices if you wanted to connect to this main bike route. One is go all the way around the circle, like three quarters of a mile, or go the wrong way two blocks and connect with this bike lane. <laughs> and so the DOT uh, here in New York very smartly just measured. How many people were doing this came back to the community board and said, we've noticed you know, how many dozens of people are doing this every hour, and our solution is we're going to make this instead of a one-way bike lane, a two-way bike lane. And we did get pushback, right? Some of the drivers were like, well, wait a minute, I can't drive the wrong way down that street. And the answer was, yeah, because you're in a really wide heavy vehicle that doesn't fit going the wrong way, but bikes do. And so I think um, my advice, I think, is to really start to change the conversation about who and who are cyclists and what are bicycles. And the answer is they are not drivers and they are not cars and work from there. Yeah. So it sounds like you would advise our listeners who are interested in making change to just start observing and then have some conversations around it. Does that sound right? Yeah, I think that's um, great advice, basically, is just, just look around and also... Um, I think cycling advocates historically have had very antagonistic relationships with local city governments, and they don't really need to all the time. Um, it's, it is tempting, and I have been that person who has been upset at my local elected official, um, but I find that there's just a growing number of electeds who get it and who want to be given the permission to do more. And our, our job as advocates, I really like to say, is to give cover to the people who want to do right um, and who just might be a little afraid politically to take a stand. So I love that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you know, there's lots of ways that can play out. One is you find out that um, your Department of Transportation has a plan to put in uh, 25 miles of bike lanes in your city, and you think, my God, that's not nearly enough. You should be putting in 500 miles of bike lanes. And so hopefully you talk to the DOT, find out why they're proposing that number, and then you say to them, we are going to go out and we are going to make a big stink. We are going to say, you need to be putting in 500 miles of bike lanes. And then guess what? Now you've given them the cover to put in 75 miles of bike lanes, and hooray, you've won, um, because you've gotten more than you would have before, and the DOT um, was able to do it because you activated a constituency for them that they might not have been able to do. Um, so I think that's a good way to look at advocacy is that we don't always need to be so antagonistic towards our elected officials. We can work in concert with them and we can give them the cover that they need to do the jobs that, you know, look, everybody who works at a transportation department, it's not like they haven't been to Europe. It's not like they're not reading all the same (laughs) stuff we're reading. They know a lot more, you know? Um, And I think sometimes advocates make this mistake of saying like, you idiot, why are you designing a bike lane like that? It's like, well, because that's what the political climate and the facts on the ground allow. It's like, yeah, we'd love to be building Dutch and Danish style bike lanes, but we can't because the local city council person is on our back to not take parking. It's like, okay, well, we got your back now. You know, we're gonna we're gonna go talk to that city council person and we're gonna show them that we are the residents in the neighborhood who want this stuff. Yeah, and it just takes time, right? Like it is. It's it's water over rocks. You just got to keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. Yep. And, and keep showing up. Yeah, and keep showing up. Yeah. So I also heard something interesting um, in your last statement, talking about this idea of don't shoot for something too small. Shoot for something big, but then don't necessarily get so hung up on did we get 500 miles of bike lanes, right? So there's there's somewhere in between that you really want to shoot for. Yeah, I, look, I think that the job of an advocate, as I said, I'm not an urban planner. Um, I'm not a wonk in that sense. And so, you know, I, I can take the position that I can look at my elected officials or planners at DOT and say, I'm going to take the maximalist position that not a single person should die on this street. And you, the professional, should come up with a plan to make that possible. It's not my job as an advocate to tell you exactly what to do. And in fact, asking for exactly what you think is the right thing to do can backfire. You know, a lot of people uh, who are not advocates, sometimes local neighborhood groups will say, well, we need a stop sign or a stoplight on that on that street because it seems rational. Drivers are going too fast or they're not stopping or whatever. Um, but those aren't always the thing that will work. Um, and so I think we as advocates just need, I think the, the real thing you need to do is identify the problem Yes. Um, and, and then say, well, tell us what the solutions are. Give us the menu of options right. and, and let us help you choose what works best. Um, you know, you don't go into your doctor's office saying, I need this specific medication. You go into your doctor's office saying, I have a headache. Um, and it can be a migraine, it could be a brain tumor. And the the, the decisions that your doctor are going to make are going to be based on his or her expertise. And so I think advocates need to just say, we are your eyes and ears on the ground helping you observe the problem and, and we're going to work with you to um, listen to what the solution is. That's fantastic. So 
um, there's videos on Twitter, right, that that have become kind of infamous in the urban sphere that show, you know, somebody, particularly, I, I think one was in New York, maybe in Brooklyn, standing on the corner, one car runs a red light, and somebody gets wiped off who was just standing there or sitting there on their bike, like, next to it, you know, and maybe... As I was saying, that that's an extreme example, but there are many places where things keep happening like that that cause people to die who are just standing there, who are just existing there. Instead of going in and saying, like you were you were trying to indicate there, with a prescriptive type of thing, you say to your leaders, listen, it's not good that people are dying here. What can we do? Right. I mean, I, I think the, the, the best example you see of that in the world today is Greta Thunberg and the climate movement. You know, she doesn't actually go around saying, here are what you, the policymakers, need to be doing. Here are the policy ideas that we should be implementing. She's just going around saying, here's the problem. Here's how much time we have left if we want to avoid the worst effects of climate change. Um, and by doing that, she's raised so much awareness um, and she has really made a difference. Here in New York, I think the best example of that, uh, there's a group called Families for Safe Streets, which is comprised of people who have lost loved ones to traffic violence, um, some people who have been injured and survived themselves. Um, and they have definitely lobbied for things like speed cameras and lower speed limits, so very specific policy ideas. But I think their bigger and most important effect is they've just told the stories of who is affected by a traffic crash and how are their lives changed and what is the loss when a child is killed um, by a car, by a driver. Um, and that has come, that has gone a long way towards bringing a lot of elected officials along to supporting safer streets. So again, yeah, it goes back to that idea of like not being overly prescriptive, of just telling stories and letting the message hit over and over and over again that something needs to be done. Right. Let uh, people's empathy kind of uh, uh, organically rise, right? Like, because people do have empathy. We have grown numb in so many ways, but. In a sense, it's like calling that to come back uh, in full force. Yeah, and look, empathy is a really huge part of it because I think you can't be a good advocate unless you're really asking yourself, like, who matters here? Um, who's not being heard here? Those kind of questions are really important. That being said, I don't want to be too saccharine, right? I think sometimes you also just need to um, defeat people. Um, Political power is is not always something that you gain by compromising. It's something you gain by beating other people at the ballot box. And we here in New York, there was a group called Streets Pack. I was a founding member that was a political action committee devoted to electing people who promised to make streets safer for pedestrians, for cyclists who were focused on transit. And um, they had immense success. Um, a great example was a senator, a state senator, Marty Golden in Brooklyn, who was the main obstacle to expanding speed cameras all across New York City. He just wouldn't do it. He was kind of the last holdout vote. And um, he was a Republican and Streets Pack and others helped defeat him at the box office and his replacement, a uh, Democrat, Andrew Gennardis, became the deciding vote that expanded the speed camera program. Oh, so, fascinating. Um, you know, so I think there's that balance of knowing when you're going to tell a good story, when you're going to listen, when you're going to be caring, when you're going to be empathetic, and when you're going to say, you know, enough is enough. 
we got to stop this. And you, sir, usually because it's a man, um, are the obstacle towards this this change. And so I think you can be. I sometimes like to say uh, I am. Uh, I consider myself to be ruthlessly kind. Um, <laughs> like that, that like that you just because you're kind and care about other people in your community and want a livable city and want it to be safe for children doesn't mean that you're a pushover and it doesn't mean that you settle all the time and just say, oh, you know, thank you, sir. May I have another? Um, yeah. it, 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 it can mean wielding power and knowing how to use it. Yeah, well said. What's up next for the war on cars? So um, that's a great question because everybody is focused now on the coronavirus. So um, <laughs> we uh, are we have a, a live show coming up uh, that may or may not go through because of that. Um, I think it is probably focused refocusing a couple of our episodes. Um, I'm interviewing a big climate activist, so we want to talk a little bit about the climate movement and the livable streets movement and how sometimes there's a bit of a disconnect between those two movements. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm working on an episode with, uh, I think I mentioned two journalists um, who uh, are here in New York who have a very pro bike, pro walking, pro transit point of view. So I want to talk to them a little bit because they're a bit of an anomaly in the media landscape. Um, We're also, we really want to do an episode on someone asked us this great question, like why are there no bikes in um, apocalypse and zombie movies. Um, so I, you know, so I think that's that gets to the idea of cars as a cultural uh, totem that we we want to talk about. Like, oh, that's a great question. Why aren't bikes seen as this thing that you that tough guys would use in an action movie to survive the zombie invasion? Um, I hope we continue to have a lot of fun with the podcast, but also press those buttons and ask those questions that are really provocative. Yeah, you guys are doing great work. It's a Thanks. great podcast, and it's so much fun to listen to. It's um, it's fun to do, and we're I think that we're just very humbled by the number of people from so many different parts of the world who are responding to it. It's 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 great. Well, you guys are honing in on something that's that's that runs very deep for clearly quite a few people. I think so. You know, I think uh, th- what I like to say too, and we all probably say it, is that everybody hates to drive, even drivers. Um, it's true. You know, so if we can do something to make the world a little better here and there, nip around the edges and and make some bigger cuts elsewhere, hopefully we'll have a better a better planet. Yeah, absolutely. So if listeners uh, here to Liberal City are excited by what they hear, how can they enlist in your war on the cars? So uh, the best way is you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. We're also at thewaroncars.org. And then we are, are funded largely through listener contributions via Patreon. So you, if you go to our website, um, there's a link uh, labeled support, and you can contribute. If you give two bucks a month, we send stickers, and the rewards and contributions go up from there. That's excellent. Any final thoughts you want to li- leave with our listeners? Um, no, I mean, I think... Uh, well, no, yes, there are some final thoughts. <laughs> um, I think the big thing for me, I think of like one of my biggest mentors, uh, Paul Steely-White, who is the former executive director of Transportation Alternatives. And I remember him saying at some event that what it takes to do the work that we do is to build what he called an ecosystem of advocates. And that um, we can't get too narrowly focused on the right types of people to do this work. We need to be inclusive, obviously, you know, and then in terms of culture and and race and identity, 
but also then in terms of profession, like bring public health workers to the table, bring your children's teachers to the table, bring your local business people to the table. It, it's not just the the weirdo bike people like me. Um, it, it's it's all kinds of people who are going to really contribute something to building a more livable city. Sage advice. Yeah. Well, Doug, it's been a ton of fun speaking with you today, and thanks very much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with me on Liberal City. My pleasure, and good luck with your podcast, too. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this two-part episode series with Doug Gordon from the War on Cars podcast. If you like this two-part, longer episode type style, let me know. I can do some more of these. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts so that you can join me back here again in two weeks for some very exciting upcoming guest interviews. I've got some amazing guests lined up, and you're definitely not going to want to miss any of them. So join me back here again in two weeks. And as always, thank you for listening. And don't forget to listen, learn, and then lead.